Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. And now, here is Walter Bingham. Hello and welcome to the program for the 21st of June, 2021, which in the Hebrew calendar is the 22nd of Sivan, 5782. My voice has still not recovered since my brush with COVID, so you'll have to excuse it. In journalism, it is often the case that the most interesting or even important stories are relegated to the back pages in favor of some undeserving sensationalist event that will attract readers. There are, however, once-in-a-lifetime occasions when even the most celebrated journalists happily give up their prominent slot in favor of a front page that will become a collector's item. That happened during four days in June this year, when Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II celebrated 70 years on the throne of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and of her other realms and territories, and as head of the British Commonwealth. It was an event that attracted the attention of the world's media. The large TV cable news stations abandoned their political bias and broadcast wall-to-wall reportage by their star presenters from their pitch at Buckingham Palace. The famous balcony of this royal residence in central London was once again the focus of attention when the Queen appeared, surrounded by her family. The cheers reverberated all the way to Trafalgar Square. The Royal Air Force provided a memorable low-level fly-past in their inimitable style. Those four days in June will forever remain in the memory of the multitude who travelled from far and wide to be a part of the celebrations. The fly-past included a group of five planes that brought back vivid memories to those of us who experienced World War II, and I'm sure also to the Queen, who did war service as a driver in the Auxiliary Territorial Service, the women's section of the British Army. Those World War II planes consisted of a Lancaster bomber, I believe the only one flying, two Hurricane and two Spitfire fighters. And that brings me to the fifth day in June, the sixth of that month in 1944, which this year was almost forgotten, or should I say overshadowed, by the Platinum Jubilee. Stay tuned for more. The return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel was prophesied in the Bible thousands of years ago and is coming true today. Shalom. Join me, Josh Wander, on Israel Unplugged. Listen in as we delve into the spiritual and physical aspects of the Jewish return to Zion. We'll discuss the biblically mandated, historic, and of course practical understandings of this incredible transition from exile to redemption. That's Israel Unplugged, every Monday on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. And now, here is Walter Bingham. And that brings me to the fifth day in June, the sixth of that month in 1944, which this year was almost forgotten, or should I say overshadowed, by the Platinum Jubilee. 
It was the day that signaled the end of Hitler's 1,000-year Reich when approximately 156,000 troops of the American, British and Canadian armies landed on the beaches of Normandy in northern France. It was the largest amphibious invasion in the history of warfare. The accepted estimate is that the Allies suffered 10,000 total casualties on D-Day itself, including 4,414 killed. Many books were written about these battles, and many heroic stories of the ensuing fighting were published. I had the privilege to take part and to land on these beaches. It was a privilege because I became a small cog in the vast undertaking to destroy the Nazi rule in Europe. Also this week saw the opening of an exhibition at the Hebrew University's Mount Scopus campus in Jerusalem. The exhibition Sweden in Israel celebrates 70 years of diplomatic presence. After all, in these days of the Abraham Accord, when Israel is making great efforts to establish diplomatic relations with ever more nations, our long connections with Sweden should rightly be stressed. Staged in conjunction with the university's European Forum, the exhibition was opened by Sweden's ambassador to Israel, His Excellency Eric Ullenhag. And this is what he told me when I suggested that this event has too little publicity. It has, but we're cheating a little bit because of COVID. We had the exhibition at the Swedish residence last year and got quite a lot of publicity. And we actually had the first visit by a Minister of Foreign Affairs in Israel for 10 years, opening up the exhibition last year. So we did have some attention then. And then the Hebrew University asked if they could borrow the exhibition. And of course, I'm super thankful to Hebrew University and also to the European Department that are trying to increase the interest in studying European-Israeli relationship, but in this case, the Swedish-Israeli relationship. Well, I look forward to talking with you some more a little later on. Thank you very much, sir. So now I am going to be shown around this picture exhibition of Swedish-Israeli relations, and my guide is... Orna Keren Karmel. We see here is an exhibition which deals with the 70 years of relations between Israel and Sweden, starting in the late 1940s and going until today. It deals with the economic, the political, the cultural aspects of Israeli-Swedish relations, and it shows both the upsides and the downsides of the relations, like the killing of Bernadotte by the Lehi in 1948, on the one hand, and on the other hand, with the very good relations that were very visible through the 1950s and 70s, while tens of thousands of kibbutz volunteers came from Sweden to take part in the socialist utopia, the kibbutz. We see something about the kibbutz volunteers, as well as on very high and formal political visit from Swedish. 
exactly to Israel throughout the years. So we have the very interesting cultural relations. For example, the connection between Leah Goldberg, the very famous Israeli children books author, and Astrid Lindgren, the Swedish very famous children's book author, collaborating on a series of children's books. What were they about? About all different children from around the world. Astrid Lindgren wrote them, and Leah Goldberg translated them into Hebrew. The photos may be the most interesting part of these books, which Anna Rivkin Brick, a Swedish photographer, took during the 1940s and 1950s. There is part dedicated to Raoul Wallenberg, how he's commemorated along the years in Israel, and of course him being righteous among the nations since 1963. And there is a very famous ambassador called Inga Torson, who was the first women ambassador of Sweden to Israel from 1964 to 1966. And she had very close relations to Golda Meir and to the Carmel Center. And they cooperated providing development aid to African women who came to Israel and got instructed in all kinds of socialism. That was a snapshot of this exhibition showing in pictures the long and fruitful relationship between Israel and Sweden. Because Sweden plays an important part in my life, as you will learn later, I want to tell you about their Flag Day, which is also celebrated on June the 6th, and in 1983 was renamed Swedish National Day. It's the date on which Gustav Vasa was elected king in 1523. This laid the foundation of Sweden as an independent state and on the same date in 1809 a new important constitution was adopted. From that date the country's politics are conducted in a framework of a parliamentary representative constitutional monarchy with executive power vested in a democratically elected government led by the Prime Minister. Today's Swedish monarch, King Karl VI Gustav, holds just symbolic power. Since a short conflict with Norway in 1814, Sweden has not been involved in any war. During both world wars, one and two, Sweden has pursued a policy of neutrality and in peacetime of non-alignment, basing its security on a strong national defence. It is still today a neutral and non-aligned country in regard to foreign and security policy. It does, however, maintain strong links with NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and National Security Alliance among the US, Canada and their European allies that was formed in the wake of World War II, to keep the peace and encourage political and economic cooperation on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. It is an alliance of 30 countries that border the North Atlantic Ocean. The alliance includes the United States, most European Union members, the United Kingdom, Canada and Turkey. More broadly, NATO has been a stabilizing influence in Europe and North America allowing the economies of its members to develop and flourish unhindered.
The foundations of NATO were laid down on the 4th of April 1949 with the signing of the Washington Treaty of Collective Defense. Its main principle is enshrined in Article 5 of the treaty, which states that an attack on one ally is an attack against all allies. As Russia shares access to Sweden via the Baltic Sea, and in light of Russia's recent display of expansionism and the attack on Ukraine, the Swedish parliament under Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson decided to reassess whether the country's security can rely on the current military defence structure. She said that Sweden will be in a vulnerable position, and in an overwhelming vote, Parliament decided to forego the country's neutrality and apply for full membership of NATO. Another consideration for this decision is Sweden's 614-kilometre-long border with neighbouring Finland, which was under the sphere of influence of the Soviet Union and is again in the crosshairs of President Putin. Finland has also dropped its current neutrality in favour of joining NATO. To get a clearer picture of Sweden's decision to abandon her 200-year-old neutrality, I met with the Swedish ambassador to Israel, His Excellency Mr. Eric Ullenhag. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Would you please explain for my listeners Sweden's reason to take this historic step? The main reason is that Russia attacked and tried to invade Ukraine. In Sweden and Finland, after the attack, many people felt quite insecure, actually. Sweden has been a country with 200 years of peace and used to be neutral, but this attack was the wake-up call. The process was fast, uh, and is fast. We have now applied for membership in NATO. But for Sweden, it was also crucial to do that together with Finland. Finland and Sweden are close countries. And when Finland decided to apply for membership in NATO, the parliament in Sweden decided to do the same at the same time. What indications are there that Russia would act militarily against Sweden? We don't see a military threat in the short run, but we see that in long term, the security situation for Sweden is probably better with inside the NATO than outside. We are also close to the Baltic states that also feels threatened. Just also, I think, for many Swedes, the war in Ukraine feels like a fight between freedom of oppression, dictatorship and democracy, and the support also for Ukraine in Sweden and around Europe is massive for the moment. And the feeling of being part of the more democratic world is also one of the arguments that have been stressed quite a lot in the Swedish debate. Dmitry Medvedev, a close supporter of Russian President Vladimir Putin, who was himself president of Russia between 2008 and 2012, and then prime minister until 2020, and is today's deputy chairman of Russia's Security Council, said that should Sweden and Finland join NATO, then Russia would have to strengthen its land, naval and air forces in the Baltic Sea and that there can be no more talk of any nuclear-free status for the Baltic. Balance must be restored. How do you respond to that? Stay tuned to hear the Swedish ambassador's reply and what follows.
Hi, I'm Steve Miller. And I'm Matt Zucker. Join us for Lighten Up, where we take a look at the week's current events in Israel and from around the Jewish world through a humorous lens. If you've been paying attention during these crazy times, you know that it's a challenge to parody life anymore. But join Steve and I as we give it the old college try. Not only is being happy an obligation, but life is just too short to take it all so seriously. So join me, Steve Miller. And me, Matt Zucker. For Lighten Up every Monday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. Israel, only on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. And now, here is Walter Bingham. Dmitry Medvedev, close supporter of Russian President Vladimir Putin, who was himself President of Russia between 2008 and 2012, and then Prime Minister until 2020, and is today's Deputy Chairman of Russia's Security Council, said that should Sweden and Finland join NATO, then Russia would have to strengthen its land, naval and air forces in the Baltic Sea and that there can be no more talk of any nuclear-free status for the Baltic. Balance must be restored. How do you respond to that? First, it's very important to underline that that's part of the European security order. We own our own decisions when it comes to security. And we were troubled, and President Putin, before Christmas last year, started to say, question which the Swedish choices or the Finnish choices are we joining NATO or not. That's a decision for us. Secondly, the reason for why we now join in NATO is Russian's aggression towards Ukraine. That's what was changed the opinion in Sweden. And after our deep debate in Sweden with all the Swedish political parties involved, a vast majority of the Swedish parliament landed in the conclusion that it's safer to be inside the NATO than outside. Medvedev's threat is quite serious. The Russian enclave of Kaliningrad on the Baltic Sea between Poland and Lithuania is for all intents and purposes a Russian military base which could become nuclear and which constitutes a threat to both the east coast of Sweden and more so to the island of Gotland. It is thought that Putin is unpredictable. Is it therefore worth to upset the status quo with the Russians? Yes, we have drawn the conclusion it's necessary. We realized and we saw probably in these times security is better together with other democratic countries in Europe and with the transatlantically linked to the United States. We hope, and I think all of us hoped, that we would live in a safer world. But in this security situation, the majority in Sweden has drawn the conclusion, and I agree with it, that we are probably, from a security perspective, better off with inside NATO and outside. And I think many Swedes were also affected by the war in Ukraine and the feeling that Ukraine was on their own. And I think that's one of the explanations for why the opinion changed. How do you see the future for Europe and in particular for Scandinavia? I'm a strong pro-European. And I think you could never overestimate the value of the European Union as such. Remember, not long ago, we had the first world war, the second world war, and we managed to come together with inside the European Union, and now Germany is actually the leading country when it comes to democracy and, and the free Europe. So I see a Europe that comes closer together, not the least because of the crisis with Ukraine, 
And I see more and more European Union countries also part of NATO. So you still will have the transatlantic link. But of course, the most important is the cooperation with other European Union countries. But of course, we also have strong ties with the countries in Europe that are outside European Union, such as UK. That it shows how formative the situation was when Russia invaded Ukraine. Sweden did send weapons to Ukraine. And it was the first time we sent weapons to a country at war since 1939, when Soviet Union attacked Finland. The conflict in Ukraine is really under the skin for people in Europe and in Sweden. We are also up in a situation where the map is changing because of this war. And I can't really grasp the effects yet. One of the effects were that Sweden and Finland applied for NATO membership. Another effect was that the European Union came closer together. And I hope that we will see more cooperation between democratic and free states. Let me now come to another subject. Is it not a fact that Sweden's declared official neutrality during World War II was not really true? because the Swedish government made several concessions and thereby breached its neutrality in favour of both Germany and later the Western Allies. Yes, and I think it's extremely important for every country to try to learn from your own history. If I should be self-critical about Sweden, for a long time we described neutrality as a higher moral standpoint. It can't be the higher moral standpoint to be neutral when you had Nazi Germany in Europe. It might have been smart to keep Sweden outside of war. You should be careful in judging generations before you. But it was not the higher moral ground. And it's a lot of things that we need to go to the bottom with and we are doing in Sweden and asking ourselves, why did we let German soldiers pass Sweden? Was that right? Morally, it was totally wrong. Was it necessary to keep us outside the war? I don't know. At the end of the war, when the luck changed and the allies were more successful, then we were closer to the other side. So neutrality in Second World War for Sweden was a way of staying outside of the war. Good so, but it was not higher moral ground. We have a lot of things that we should think did we do the right thing and not sit on too high horse when we discuss other countries. You've already preempted something that I wanted to ask you. During June and July 1941, Sweden allowed the German army to use Swedish railways to transport, for instance, a German 163rd Infantry Division, along with heavy weapons from Norway to Finland. There were regular similar breaches in Sweden's neutrality. On the 8th of July 1940, the Swedish agreement with Nazi Germany was formalized. One daily train, 500 men, back and forth between Trelleborg and Konsier. And one weekly train, 500 men, back and forth between Trelleborg and Narvik. An agreement that was later expanded. Matters that I have to question. Yes, that's not up to Swedish history you can be proud of. It was a decision made by the then government. They were probably convinced that if they didn't accept this agreement, they would be drawn into the war. But it's not a morally high ground. It's a part of the Swedish history that we need to question ourselves. And I think all European countries, including the neutral countries, have a duty to try to learn from what we did during the Second World War and also be open that some things we did good, some things we have all the reason to question. You see, there's more. 
It's no secret that Sweden supplied iron ore to Nazi Germany via its northern ports and also via Norway, reaching 10 million tons per year, equally driven by business SKF. The Swedish ball-bearing industry supplied more than 50% of German ball-bearing requirements during World War II, but also a smaller percentage to the UK. So it wouldn't be the first time that Sweden is not neutral, except that it wouldn't be covert. It depends how you define neutrality. We weren't neutral during the war in the way that we didn't go into fighting on either side of the war, with exception for supporting Finland with weapons. We didn't participate in any fighting. It's part of the history that we all have the reason to think about, and I think it's extremely important not to hide anything in history either. It's not moral high ground to act the way Sweden did. It was a way of keeping Sweden outside of war. Right or wrong, it's widely debated in Sweden. I wonder if all Swedes see it the same way as you do. It's a debate in Sweden. It's also healthy. Is that for a long time we described ourselves as sitting on a higher moral ground. We have different opinions, of course. What is good the last decades is that this has been quite widely debated. And the most healthy development, I would say, is that when I went to school in the 70s and the 80s, the perspective in Sweden was that we were morally better than others because we were neutral. That position doesn't have any supporters anymore. You really, it might have been necessary to do this out of different reasons, but you can't say you were morally right to be neutral when you had Nazi Germany and, and Nazis in Europe. I would be remiss if I would not mention that shortly before the end of the war, Sweden made a great humanitarian effort by obtaining the Nazis' permission to organize transports to rescue Jews and others from Nazi concentration camps in the now famous white buses with Red Cross markings, one of which is displayed in the gardens of Yad Vashem. The government at the time was headed by the arguably longest-serving Prime Minister, Torge Erlander, 23 years, and followed by the equally humanitarian Olof Palme. I want to end with this message that I am forever grateful to the government of Sweden who have in this way rescued my mother from the clutches of the Nazis and to the people of Sweden for having accepted her as one of her citizens. Today Sweden stands at the crossroads of her future, not only in the realm of foreign policy, but also to combat the notorious rise of anti-Semitism within its ranks. Ambassador Ullenhag, thank you for having been so frank and for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And now, by popular demand, another track from Lenny Solomon's Shabbat in Liverpool. Thank you. 
You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. This is Shai Bentico, and each week I'll be webcasting to you from Judea, origin of the word Jew, a people besieged and beleaguered in every generation. Nazi Germany's but a memory, but in its place the world invented the phantom Palestinians as this generation's internationally authorized Jew killers. Tune in for a different slant on life in Israel, Phantom Nation, every Monday. And now, here is Walter Bingham. Israel, we are living in turbulent times, and it's almost impossible to avoid talking about our internal politics. The sovereignty movement that started as Women in Green has become an influential voice representing the true right-wing of Israeli politics. Its mission is expressed in their recent statement that I find so important that I shall read it here in full. The movement views the application of sovereignty as the essential and true answer to the question of the status of Judea and Samaria. The application of Israeli law over Judea and Samaria should have been done decades ago, and then the State of Israel would not have needed emergency regulations that perpetuate the historic stain that Israel experiences as long as it does not apply its sovereignty over the cradle of its homeland and the source of its life as the Jewish people. The chairwomen of the movement, Yehudit Katsover and Nadia Matar, expressed their hope that right-wing members of the coalition government will come to their senses, put aside personal and political considerations, and understand the historic necessity of the application of Israeli sovereignty over Judea and Samaria. Unite under the Zionist vision and vote for sovereignty, is their motto. The statement then explains that there is a huge majority in the Knesset that supports sovereignty. Unfortunately, our government is neither representative of the Knesset majority nor of current public opinion, and our Prime Minister's obsession with retaining power is causing ever-increasing governmental turmoil. It is a path that leads to irrevocable structural damage of our beloved country unless there will be vast demonstrations calling for dissolution of Knesset now. As much as I regret the expense to the public purse, it will be minimal compared to the financial as well as social costs caused by the present government. Although I am not a believer in interim opinion polls, the almost uniform results obtained by several respected polling organizations cannot be ignored. The country wants rid of Bennett and his gang, whose internal rivalry and mistrust dominate their activities to the detriment of the country and the loss of respect from our enemies both within and without. Following Prime Minister Bennett's announcement yesterday, we hope that within the next few days, Knesset will vote for its dissolution. Our fiscal policy causes both our Arab coalition partners and the Palestinian Authority to laugh all the way to their foreign bank accounts. Thus is the sorry state of the nation. 
Every foreign statesman and his dog have the solution to the Palestinian-Israeli problem. Also, they think, every few days the government lays out the red carpet for one or another of those would-be prophets. They arrive in Israel with grand plans of how to further divide our already previously drastically reduced homeland by pandering to the Arab lobby in the hope that they will be catapulted into the annals of Middle East politics as the ultimate peacemakers. The latest arrival was Ursula von der Leyen, President of the European Commission, who, like all others, failed to achieve her intended mission. These excursions to Israel by influential politicians are not new to us, They started already in 1948, following the establishment of the Jewish state. To my knowledge, the first was the Swedish Count Volker Bernadotte, who in his capacity as envoy of the UN presented their plans of how to permanently apportion Jerusalem to the satisfaction of the Arab world. He too had no luck. And so they came one after another with false hope, only to have to return again with their tails between their legs. But the Pied de Resistance will occur on July 13 and 14, when the alleged leader of the free world, Joe Biden, will stumble down the steps of Air Force One onto the tarmac at Ben-Gurion Airport, red carpeted of course, to begin yet another attempt to salvage his failed presidency. He is in fact en route to Saudi Arabia to beg for oil in order to save his green policy at home, never mind pollution occurring elsewhere. While in the area he felt it worthwhile to exert his authority and demand an end to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I, like all other rationally thinking Israelis, are looking forward to Biden's presentations read off the indispensable teleprompters. To me, it is inconceivable why his advisers will allow an opportunity at such a high-profile visit for the president to possibly make another one of his regular faux pas. Israel's government press office has been busy screening the press credentials of the masses of international journalists who invariably want to flood the country on such occasions. The creeping encroachment of the LGBTQ movement has reached yet another Jewish institution. The Jerusalem Post reports that following an action brought by the YU Pride Alliance in the New York County Supreme Court, Judge Lynn Kotler ruled that YU as a non-religious organization is subject to the New York City human rights law. They have therefore immediately to accord the YU Pride Alliance the full and equal accommodations, advantages, facilities and privileges afforded to all other student groups. Yeshiva University is not a religious corporation, she ruled, and therefore cannot ban a certain group because of the religious faith. I have never understood 
and will never come to terms with the justification that someone's sexual orientation should be flouted in public. It is, in my view, a strictly personal matter and not a cause to form official associations or even stage public demonstrations or marches. Their adopted term of pride, of being proud, is a total misnomer, and so is gay, a legitimate term of the English language that can now no longer be used for its original meaning. And finally, you would have thought that the one subject which will never be tainted by politics is looking after dogs. But unfortunately, you would be wrong. If you'd want to adopt a canine from a Californian dog shelter, you'd have to fill in a form. Quite normal, you might think, but the first question on the form asks you about your opinion of the gun lobby, and depending on your answer will determine whether you will be approved or rejected. Now you tell me, what has that to do with being able and capable to look after a dog? And with that, I end for today. Thank you for listening, and if you have any comments or suggestions, please write to walter at israelnewstalkradio.com where you will always get my personal reply. So, until we meet again, this is Walter Bingham wishing you a pleasant week, a healthy week, and please don't forget to look after your elderly neighbor. It might even be a Holocaust survivor. Goodbye. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.
news, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 